Would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we thank you that you are alive, enthroned, surrounded by endless praise. There is no one like you. And you are a speaking God, willing to be known by your people, teaching us, instructing us, shaping and transforming us so that we can live fully aligned with what you've designed us for. My request in these moments with with these scriptures open before us is that, God, you would speak directly to our hearts and you would expose the places of sinful and foolish discontentment in us and that by your word, you would would reveal to us the glories of your son and help us to be souls at rest who have a right relationship with our money. We need your help towards this end for our flourishing, for the good of our families, for our witness in the city and in the world. We need your help. So God, would you come and would you speak to your people? We are listening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Things have a proper place and when they're not in their proper place, we trip over them. Or at least that's the story of my house. Uh, It is a part-time job at the Morris house, putting things back in their proper place. So this is shared responsibility in our house, though I will say that Ashley and I might take the the brunt of it. Uh, It's the putting away of the baseball gloves and the matchbox cars and the Legos and the volleyballs and the baseballs and the basketballs and the dishes. and And the truth is that if we don't do this work every night, our house is treacherous. It's dangerous. Making your way through the house, you're stepping on something that's stabbing you in the bottom of the foot or tripping over something because things need to be in their proper place or we trip over them. More seriously, it's not always just stuff. Sometimes I need to be put in my proper place, you know? Sometimes I'm the one that's out of place and until I'm in the right place, I'm gonna be tripping over myself. It's that loving word from a trusted friend that says, Jeremiah, you're, you're not the center of the universe. When things are not in their proper place, we trip over them. We continue to find ourselves back in the same spot that we've been in before. And as we come to the conclusion of what has been a four-week series, looking at the Proverbs and asking the wisdom of God what, what it has to say about money, we come to the fourth week and we're recognizing that we need to have a sit-down talk with money and we need to put it back in its proper place. In a sense, this is what we've been doing for a month. We've examined wealth, and we've examined poverty, and we've examined generosity, and asked God, what does the wisdom literature have to say about these things? And now we come to a, a final week, which in many ways is taking these composite pieces and zooming out and saying, what is the end game for the child of God situated properly, who puts money in its proper place, what is the end game? And the reality is that we, of all people, have an opportunity to live in contentment, souls at rest, no longer plagued by and buried by the insatiable discontent that wants to tell our story. And so this morning, what what I want us to do is we're just going to have this sort of 
wisdom conversation with our finances. We're going to have a sit down. We're going we're gonna to say, money, it's time for me to put you in, in your proper place so that I can pursue contentment in the way that God has made available to me as his child. And so we're going to do this in two ways. First, we're going we're gonna to labor together to put money in its proper place. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look at five Proverbs. We just had them read in the mix of those Proverbs. Five Proverbs that very clearly state that there are things that are better than money. So we're going to put money in its proper place by examining what are five things. This isn't a comprehensive list, but it's a true list. Each of these things is better than money. And so we're going to put money in its proper place by making sure that these things are prioritized over and above it. And then we will talk at the conclusion about what then does it look like to pursue contentment. You with me? As we, we round the corner on, on wrapping up this discussion of our finances and Proverbs. Let's put money in its proper place together. So five things that are better than money according to God's wisdom. The first, we found in, in Proverbs 8 verse 19. Let's look at that verse again together. It says this, my fruit, this is in the midst of a speech by Lady Wisdom. So this is wisdom embodied that is speaking. And what she says is this, my fruit, wisdom's fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. So wisdom is speaking and saying, thinking about the outcome. Did you hear the words, my, my fruit or my yield? What comes as a result? And what Lady Wisdom is saying is that you can have the finest of gold, you can have plenty of silver, and the outcome of those things will not compare with the outcome of wisdom. Gold and silver can buy you stuff. And if it's fine gold, it can buy you lots of stuff. You can have piles of it, but the outcome, the yield, will not compare to what will come from wisdom. And so it's helpful just to pause and consider what, what does it look like to have piles of the gold and the silver and not to have wisdom? And you may, you may know someone like this. I've got a composite in my mind, a series of people that I've met over the years. It is not any one particular person. And so if you think I'm talking about someone, I'm not. But there are, there are many people in the world that are rich fools. And it, a rich fool has lots of stuff. And as a result, they have a certain reputation and a posture that makes them feel like they're better than other people. They're often proud. They're blustery. They think their opinion matters more than everyone else's because their bottom line is greater. And so when they step into the room, they think that things will slowly start to revolve around them. They think that, well, people will defer to them and, and that their voice will be most important. As a result, there's oftentimes a lot of relational tension in their lives. Maybe not that they're fully aware of because they're convinced that it's about them. But as a result, oftentimes the people closest to them, like a spouse or children, just grimace or grit their teeth. Oftentimes there's in the proud fool's life, lots of tension in marriage one, or it might be marriage two or marriage three. And they have the buying power to continue to pile up all of the things, but underneath it all is a, is a slow, sinking, angry feeling that this isn't working. You see, wisdom gives us the ability to navigate tough relational situations. 
Wisdom is linked with humility and the capacity to admit wrong and to stay meaningfully connected to those close to us. It helps us to know when to pick our battles and when not to, to wade in. And so what Lady Wisdom is saying is, is saying, listen, you're going to have a thousand little forks in the road in your journey where you feel like, okay, this path looks like it's leading to greater wealth and this, look, this path looks like it's leading to greater wisdom. Wisdom is always patient. It's not hasty. And there might be this path verging off that says, this will be quick money. You can lay hold of this quickly and you're going to have to lay down some of your wise practices, but this is going to promise greater income. Listen, Every one of those thousand forks in the road, it is better to choose wisdom. Choose wisdom because it's better than money. And until we put money in its proper place, we stare it in the eye and say, listen, if I am never a wealthy woman or I am never a wealthy man, but I end the day, I come to the end of my life and I'm marked by godly wisdom, I pick that Every time, money, you need to go back to your proper place. Wisdom is more important than you. The second thing that the Proverbs are going to stay re- say really clearly is not just wisdom, but love. Love is more important than money. And I don't mean this just like in a romantic sense, like a love song that we're listening to on the radio or the latest rom-com that we're watching. But I mean like true connectivity, posturing for the benefit of another, this sort of mutuality, this sort of relationship that marks the healthiest places for us, that love will trump money every time. Look at Proverbs 15, 17, and then relatedly, I want us to see a couple of verses prior, 15, 15. Let's take them in reverse order, though. Proverbs 15, 17 says this, better, better is a dinner of herbs where love is present, where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. So he's going, better just a veggie dinner, just a light vegetarian meal, and I don't get my beautiful, glorious steak, but if, if that meal is shared with genuine love, like the people around the table are unified and encouraging and speaking tenderly to one another, what the wisdom literature is saying is every time it's better, It's better than the fancy meal where underneath it all, you can barely look the other person in the eyes. You're carrying so much bitterness and frustration about the ways you've been mistreated or spoken over or or not seen that yes, the table is full of delicious food, but I pick the herbs, says wisdom. The reason Proverbs 15, 15, I think helps us see, it says all the days of the afflicted are evil, but it says the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. I think the recognition is that that even if the meal is meager, if you're marked by love and commitment to those closest to you and you're experiencing joy with them, that there will be a cheerfulness of heart that transforms whatever is on the table into a glorious feast. This This is what the wisdom literature is saying. One of the places where I most consistently experience my discontent, my sinful discontent, is when I'm driving through my neighborhood and there's a new house being built. Um, I live in a, an old neighborhood with kind of one-story ranch-style homes, of which my wife and I, my, we live in one of those and have for the last 11 years. And slowly, the houses are getting torn down and there's these beautiful custom homes being built around us. 
my discontent, if I'm honest, is when I'm driving through and I see the next one going up and I'll kind of peer in the windows sometimes. I'll even see, I'm like, oh, custom wood finishes. Like, that is beautiful. And I start thinking, my life would be better if I lived in that house. I'll find myself at night scrolling on HAR and just like, I wonder, doing the math, I wonder if we could, when will we, will we ever be able to live in one of those houses? And I, I, I play that game, you know? And sometime back, I was standing in, the, in my street getting to know a neighbor, a, a, a neighbor that I hadn't known previously, but in a moment of honesty, he started sharing deeply about what was going on in his heart. And he was sharing with me that he said, it, it's just really hard living in my house because it feels like everyone who lives there despises one another. He said, I got to tell you, and he said, I don't know if it's because you're a pastor man because I just told him what I did for a living. We were just meeting, you know. This, this is the, maybe the benefits and the burden of being a pastor. I'm good with it. But he said, I don't know if it's just because you're a pastor or what, but I feel comfortable telling you this. Like, I think my marriage is over. And I'm pretty sure my kids don't want anything to do with us. And I was so burdened. I was so sad. I got to pray with this guy in the street. And then afterwards, I was saying, you know, where do you live? And he told me his address. It was one of the houses that I've been walking by going, if only I could live there, you know? And I realized in that moment that the house is not the point. And what's on the table is not the point. And we keep tripping over it because we don't believe what God has said to be true. I keep tripping over my own discontent because I don't believe God's word. That what he is saying is, listen, there's going to be a thousand little forks in the road between money and loving those that God has entrusted to you truly. Pick the path that leads to love every time. Pick that path. Cherish those that God has given you. I had a friend several years back that was a young attorney and he said, I was running really hard at this, at this calling. And he said, billable hours were like the taskmaster in my life that were going to drive me into the ground. And he said, me and a couple of friends realized that our wives and our children were going to hate living with us as long as we lived this life. And he said, so we, in a moment of maybe stupidity, maybe courage, I don't know, but we decided we were going to start a new firm that had a different, love, a different commitment. We were, our commitment was we were going to leave a lot of money on the table. And we were going to create a system that was sustainable for everyone, that provided excellent legal care and didn't drive anyone into the ground. He was telling me this story years in reverse, and what he said is this, it's true, I've left a lot of, a lot of money on the table. And he said, but man, my wife and I still cherish one another. I would make that choice every time. That's the voice of wisdom. Friends, I don't know what your path looks like, and I don't know what choices you are making, but so frequently you buy the lie that, well, I'm going to choose this path because I'm going to be able to provide better for my family. I'm going to be able to give them more. And quite frankly, underneath the system, so frequently what your spouse or your children are looking back at you and saying is, give me you. I would eat veggies. I would eat just, a, just the herbs on the table if we could show up actually loving one another, actually seeing one another and tending to each other. You see, we need to sit down with our money and look it in the eye and say, love is better than you. You need to go to your proper place. 
The third reality that the Proverbs show expose for us is this. Humility is better than money. This is connected to wisdom, but it is distinct from it. In Proverbs 16 and verse 19, it says this. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. It's better to be with the lowly of spirit and be with the poor than to have piles of spoil that we're dividing with the proud. If you are typing in the destination of your life, you know, if, if you think of your life as a, as a journey and you're typing in on your GPS the destination, where do you want to go? Listen, there are few better destinations than typing in humility. Going, which path do I want to be on? Andrew Murray made the argument, and I am, I am prone to believe it. He said that if you want one single indicator that you are growing more into the likeness of Jesus, look no further than humility. Do you consider others more significant than yourself? The path that leads to human flourishing and joy, it's counterintuitive, but it is marked out by saying, when you start to live and posture yourself throughout all of your days, or all the people around you, you're, you're viewing them as more significant than yourselves. This is a life that leads to beauty and growth, and development and joy. It is the mark of Christian maturity. And the struggle is this that there's a thousand little forks in your road where you're gonna feel like you have to choose between humility or expanding your bottom line. It often sounds like this. You do realize you're never gonna get ahead until you start learning how to play the game, right? You've gotta you've got promote yourself. You know that the bosses aren't gonna see what you're doing if you're not positioning yourself and posturing yourself. You've, you can't let this other girl or this other guy keep getting in front of you. You have to get ahead if you're going to get yours. Depending on the sort of office you live in or the sort of industry you're in, that sort of lie is often fed to us that what it needs to mark the, the office place is competition and struggle and self-promotion. Every time you have the choice between humility and what you think is leading to an expansion of your financial well-being, choose humility. Do not buy the lie that you have to be a self-promoting competitor that is undercutting coworkers. Be about collaboration and encouragement. Even when it doesn't make sense in your industry, you will like the end game of that person. You will like who you will become if you look money in the eye and you say, listen, humility is better than you, I choose humility. See, wisdom, love, humility, all better than money, but that's not all. The fourth thing that the Proverbs are gonna tell us is this, integrity is better than money. Proverbs 28 and verse six says this, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Integrity, you may even hear it in the word itself. It, it's connected to the word integration, integer. It means whole, without division or without fraction. Complete. When you have integrity, you are not a fractured person that pretends this thing and pretends this thing and pretends this thing. You are always the same person delivered into every interaction. You are integrated. And so anytime you hear no one will ever know. 
Listen, if in your mind you ever think, no one will ever know, that is the voice of Satan. He is a liar, and what he wants to convince you is this, the shadows can hide you, and they can't, and they won't. The end game, the shadows will never hide you. Light will win the day. Do not believe the lies and become a divided person. You see, integrity is better than whatever that lie is selling you. I have a friend right now that's wrestling with this reality. He says that we, we operate in an industry, I'm doing some sales and some different things, and there's these enormous contracts that come through that have millions of dollars of impact on the company's revenue. He said the struggle is this, the competition, when they get these contracts, they will sign the contract saying that we can deliver in this amount of time with this level of quality, knowing that that's not possible. And he said, we know that, and they know that, but it's not always the one on the other end that knows that. And he said, so we're struggling with this thing. This has become the standard in our industry, is that we sign it and then we deal with the fallout later. He said, so what do we do? Do we just keep losing the contracts over and over to the people that say that they can do things that they can't do? That's a challenge. And wisdom would set us down and would set money down and say, listen, money, you're not as important as integrity. If I fracture time and time again and I give myself away time and time again to try to lay hold of you money, at the end, there will be nothing left but you. I won't be an integrated whole. I may have lots and lots of stuff, but I'm just a thin shell of the woman or the man that I once was. Listen, you have to sit your money down, look it in the eye and say, integrity is better than you. I am not for sale. See, wisdom and love and humility, integrity, and lastly, righteousness. Righteousness is better than money. Look at these final two references before we press into contentment. Proverbs 16, 8 says this, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. This is an answer to my friend's quandary, right? This is an answer to all of those moments where we want to sell our integrity. It's going, no, no, no. If you end up with a little, but your righteousness is intact, it's better than great revenues with injustice, with trampling others, with mistreating others. To be righteous is to do the right thing, especially by those that oftentimes don't have the capacity to defend themselves. Proverbs 11.4 helps us understand why A little is better with righteousness. It says this, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness will deliver from death. You see, wisdom zooms out far enough to see the big picture. Foolishness always only sees right in front of them. And when you zoom out far enough, what you realize is that righteousness is better with a little because one day we will stand before the throne of God and everything will be stripped bare. It raises the question, those, those ways that you are leaning into your income, the ways that you're trying to maximize the profit and you feel like, oh, I don't know if this is quite right. In those moments, 
Ask yourself, how is this going to look before the throne when it's stripped bare, when I don't get to explain it, I don't get to put any spin on it, I don't get to use all of my clever language about how and why we arrived at these decisions, when it's just standing there stark and clear before the presence of God. How are we going to feel about that decision then? What Proverbs is saying is that you will have a thousand little forks in the road where you have a choice to make. Am I going to choose righteousness, doing right by everyone involved, even the powerless, even the ones that are being squashed? Money is so slippery, deceptive, is it not? It's a moral neutral. I'm not against money. Money, the scriptures are not against money. It is a, it's a neutral that can be used for good or for evil. But if, if this neutral reality, if we're not going to keep tripping over it, we've got to put it in its place. And its place is subservient to and under wisdom and love and humility and integrity and righteousness every time. Let's put money in its proper place. And when it's finally there, we can arrive at the grand conclusion of God's wisdom. We've talked wealth, and we've talked poverty, and we've talked generosity, and we've, we've kind of cleared the deck and trying to say, okay, God, what is the end game as it relates to my heart with this moral neutral, trying to make sense of money? And I think a summary statement as clear as given, it's interesting, I think comes in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9, and I think it mirrors the summary statements that we receive in the New Testament as well. Let me read these verses for us as we think about pursuing contentment to the glory of God. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Thing one, Remove from me falsehood and lying. It says the words of Agur. He's coming to the conclusion. He's saying, remove from me. I don't, I don't want to be a liar. Help me not to be deceptive. But then secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I will be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. As the Proverbs are rounding the corner towards their conclusion, and we get some summary statements in the last two chapters. One of the summary statements having to do with wealth is this. Listen, we need to be delivered from a desire, a design for riches or for poverty. He's going, what if our gaze was on something different altogether? It's not about being rich or poor primarily. The interesting thing is that we often think of wealth as a blessing. I don't know, God's just blessing me because I've got more money. And we think of poverty as a curse. And I think more truly what the scriptures would say is that both wealth and poverty are a temptation. They're a test for our souls. That, that neither is especially a blessing or especially a curse. It is treacherous territory that is going to expose what's really in us. 
And so the wisdom literature comes to the conclusion and says, oh God, give me this thing that you would deliver me from either one of these things so that I could experience contentment. Just give me what I need and help me to trust you in the midst of that. This, interestingly, sounds a lot like the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6, Philippians 4, summary statements about finances where we read things like, if you have clothes on your back and food, be grateful and content there. There is great gain and godliness with contentment. Or in Philippians 4 where Paul says, I have learned this this mystery, this kind of hidden truth in Christ that I can be content in all circumstances. I know how to have a lot and I know how to have little. What Paul is saying is, because it's not about having a lot or having a little, it's about having a heart that is so situated and content in what God has done. The invitation is is to have our money put in its proper place so we can finally be souls at rest. I recently read a book by a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. What a great name this guy has, huh? Yeah? Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote it hundreds of years ago. He wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in part, what he is, what he is arguing, what he's exposing is this reality that there is a unique gift that is entrusted to Christians particularly. If what we believe is true then we of all people in the world have the tools necessary to be a genuinely contented people. (sighs) To not feel like we're striving and grasping and struggling, that envy and longing and unrest, all of these things can start to wither and die in the face of something better. You see, my twisted relationship with money has led me to both extremes that Proverbs 30 sketches out. Did you hear the, the, the alternative outcome to contentment? It, it says, either I will be full and I will deny you, or I'll be poor and steal and profane the name of God. It's either that I will deny God or profane God. And my twisted relationship with money has led me to both consistently. That when I feel like everything's good, my desperation and my my dependence on God begins to waver. Not as eager and hungry and longing, knowing that he needs to show up. But when I feel my lack, all of a sudden it's like, it translates to envy and discontent. And well, if I just had what they had, and why did they end up with this lot and I ended up with this one? It's this twisted relationship with our money that robs us of contentment. And and ultimately what we need to see is that in wisdom embodied, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, we see a picture of the greater truth that delivers our souls into genuine contentment. A man that faced a thousand little forks in the road as he walked walked this earth in a 50-mile radius surrounding Nazareth in that area as he was growing up, a thousand little forks in the road where time and time again what he picked, what he picked was wisdom integrity, love, humility, righteousness, that when the voice of the enemy came and whispered and said, I've got a shortcut and no one has to know, you can have all the kingdoms of the earth right now and you don't have to die. 
He stared into the face of the enemy and he, tr- he made his way through the shadows of this world, always picking a path that ultimately didn't lead to piles and piles of stuff. What it led to was the hill of Calvary and his own death, that he had a perfect relationship with the things of this world because he was committed to things that were more valuable, that were better, and it cost him his very life. He was bleeding and dying, paying the price for all the ways that my twisted relationship with money All of our sin and brokenness in that moment being heaped on him. And what he was saying is, put it on me. I will pay the price to finally set you free. That in his death, he was paying the price for our greed and our discontent. Our lack of humility and our lack of integrity. He lived the life you and I were supposed to live. And he died the death that we deserve to die. So that in his resurrection, beauty, and power, what he could come and say is, it is all yours. All the riches of heaven are yours as we have rehearsed week over week. And ultimately what he's delivering our souls into is rest. If you lay awake at night scrolling H-A-R thinking that some house will finally give your heart content. You check the bank statement one more time thinking if the number were just right, I'd be okay. Listen, you are secure in my love forever. You can be content. You can rest easy. Oh, that God would give us eyes to see Jesus, because when we do, we will put money in its proper place, and we will pursue contentment to the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Father, I feel pointedly in this moment my nearsightedness. I, even as Jason prayed earlier, I'm forgetful frequently. I'm forgetful. And I pray that where we as a people experience such unrest around our finances, that you would help us to, to live wisely and joyfully, and in a way that is centered on Jesus, that we would be souls at rest in glorious and godly contentment. We know that there is great gain there. So I pray that you would make it true for my brothers and sisters today, that you would draw us to Jesus and teach us to interact with our wealth in a way that honors you. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.